Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Air Force is sounding the alarm about operating under a year-long continuing resolution. Should that be what Congress finally coughs up? A senior Air Force official says the consequences would be catastrophic if Congress does not pass a 2024 budget. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more with us. What would the impact be, they're saying, and who's saying it? For the Air Force and the Defense Department at large, getting another short-term bill is frustrating, and it stops the military from starting new programs or making progress on their current initiatives. Now, if Congress ends up funding the government through a continuing resolution for the remainder of the year, the Air Force would end up losing $13 billion in buying power. And on top of it, there is this mechanism when Congress doesn't pass appropriation bills, it triggers a 1% cut from the budget, which means that the Air Force would be operating at the 2023 budget levels minus 1%. So hence the $13 billion number. And just to put more numbers on it, a year-long continuing resolution would affect the Space Force the most. The Space Force would lose around $2.6 billion in research dollars. The measure would impact seven national security space launches. It would cancel 34 construction projects. The Air Force would lose around $1.4 billion in research, test, and development dollars. And here's acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. That's what she said about a year-long continuing resolution. If we don't get the appropriations, we have a full-year CR, or even worse, go to the uh, FRA levels, which get to FY23 minus 1%. And I can go into some of the details of that, which are, are really pretty catastrophic. And I don't think there's been enough discussion about some of those impacts. And what programs did she feel would be the most impacted by a full-year CR? As of right now, there are about 100 initiatives that remain on hold until Congress passes the 2024 budget. And a lot of those, um, I think around 19, those are modernization initiatives. Jones mentioned that their Agile Combat Employment, which is an initiative, uh, it's supposed to improve their ability to operate in the Indo-PACOM region. That program got a significant budget boost in the 2024 proposal, in the 2024 request. But right now, they can bring those investments up to the levels that they had planned. Another one is their collaborative combat aircraft program. They're really excited about it. It lets them test concepts around autonomous and manned unmanned aircraft teaming. For now, they can't really move into the next stages of production. But these are just a couple of examples. But CR would have impacts across the board. Here's the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, Lieutenant General Rick Moore. Military construction impacts the places where Aaron worked, the places where they live. It impacts families. It's really difficult to quantify some of those things, uh, but I think anybody that you ask about what they think about 2013 and how their workforce continues to feel about 2013, it's a decade later and we're still not past that. These have lasting impacts, these kind of uh, implemented penalties. It, it will take us a long time to get past this and the combat capability that we need to field in order to stay relevant and to try and keep up with the pacing threat. They're not possible under fiscal guidance like this. 
And there's one more factor, Anastasia, and that is this 5.2% pay raise for troops. This is coming regardless of what happens with the budget, just as it is for other federal employees. And what does that mean? for these programs. Yeah, they're already absorbing that cost, but it would mean cutting enlistment bonuses and the recruiting environment is already challenging. Also, General Charles Brown, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said in an open letter that a year-long continuing resolution would leave a $5.8 billion gap in military personnel accounts. Here's Acting Undersecretary of the Air Force, Kirsten Jones. Because of the fact that we've had a really historic increase in our pay for this year, both military and civilian, we've had to absorb that already starting at the beginning of this calendar year. And so that requires us to make even bigger impacts in the non-pay areas. That was Acting Undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. All right. So the Air Force complaining, and rightfully so, that they can't get by with a CR. And what about the other armed services? Have we heard from them as much yet? Yes. The Navy would lose around $1.5 billion in their research and development programs. It would also lose around $2.4 billion for things like electronics, ship improvements, and other miscellaneous equipment. Also, a classified special access program would lose on $1.1 billion. But actually, the Army's research budget would go up if we were to operate under year-long CRs. Interesting. Well, so a lot of effects there. We've got one more month, and they've got to decide. And later on in this hour, we'll hear from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller has the rundown on what exactly is happening in Congress this week and next week. In the meantime, Anastasia Obis of Federal News Network, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And of course, not only a year-long CR is threatened, but also, once again, the possibility of a government shutdown in another month. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Pamela Richards. She is the president of Federally Employed Women. Here's a preview of what we'll be hearing about her opinion and the opinion of federally employed women on the possibility of a shutdown. With the government shutdown, uh, it affects women because some women with the single-parent households They are affected by possibility of furlough, possibility of not being able to take care of their financial responsibilities, not being able to take care of their child care uh, for their their child. So it affects a lot when it comes to our our women and, and our membership. So what's your message to Congress then? What would you have them do? So one thing we would like for them to do is, as you've already stated, is to move past it and pass a budget that will allow for us to continue to work as uh, federally employed women. Last fall, few submitted a request to Congress imploring them to act on one of their options to end the entire annual government shutdown process. And at that time, there were several uh, avenues put forward to get rid of those temporary stop gaps, get rid of the whole shutdown conversation. And obviously that did not happen, but we would love for a bipartisan agreement to take place to end the government shutdown. And I cannot speak for all federal managers, but I am certain that many would agree with me on this, or federally employed women on that. And a lot of federally employed women are not managers, and therefore they are at the lower levels of the pay scale. And that's much more disproportionately difficult for people that don't earn that much to be out of work, even though the paycheck will come eventually. During the time there is no paycheck, it can be really difficult. Right, right. And those that are at, well, let's just say the bottom of the total pole, but you're lower level GS workers, this has created uh, a heavy financial impact on them, a burden for them. 
as it relates to having to worry about a government shutdown from year to year. And now, of course, the government will be in a fresh continuing resolution, this one lasting till March, operating under the CR year after year. That's I think the general public doesn't understand why that's difficult for those trying to keep the government operating on a day-to-day basis. Tell us how it affects things. I'll look at it from a human capital piece. Every day, the federal government employees work hard to run the operations, and regardless of the political climate, putting their livelihoods on the line is unconscionable. There are two different deadlines that are affecting two sets of workers, and they are associated with budgets. This creates major inequities as you watch uh, operations unfold. And that's Pamela Richards, the president of Federally Employed Women. Hear the interview in its entirety tomorrow. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.